Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Welcome to Race and Democracy. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Edmund T. Gordon, who is associate professor and the founding chair of the Department of African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's also the vice provost for diversity. Uh, Dr. Gordon, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to have a wide-ranging conversation today because you um, have been at UT for 32 years now. You're the founding chair and really the institution builder for the ADS department, uh, which is the Department of African and African Diaspora Studies, which offers PhDs, which offers masters, which offers undergraduate degrees, really one of the leading programs uh, in the United States for black studies. But at the same time, you've also played a pivotal role in um, the way in which we think about black studies in higher education, but also racial equity in public education in the Austin Independent School District. So I want to really ask you about both of those things um, throughout the course of our conversation. Sounds good. Okay. So the first thing I want to ask you is that you served for four years on the school board in the AISD system just recently. And based on those experiences, in terms of AISD and racial inequality, when it comes to school budgets, outcomes between Black, Latinx students, and white students, um, what are the real issues of access and equity for our Black and students who are non-white in the AISD system? Well, there are a number of issues. I think the, um, the two most important ones that come to mind is one that, um, well, how many years has it been since uh, Brown versus the Board of Education? Since 1954. All right, that's a good long time. And yet uh, public education in the city of Austin, Texas is still almost completely segregated. Uh, so that's one thing. And why, why is that in terms of when we think about Brown and Brown was the, the big decision we all talk about as scholars of civil rights and race and black studies. Why, you know, so many decades after that decision is segregation still here and right here in the city of Austin? Well, this is not just an issue here in Austin. It's an issue all around the country. And the why is it has to do with how it is that school districts reconstitute themselves and actually uh, city populations reconstitute themselves after Brown versus the Board of Education and the, the halting efforts to actually uh, engage in racial desegregation. So there's a, there's a number of things. One is that in a city like Austin, uh, while there was racial desegregation mandated for the schools, there was never a real mandate uh, in relationship to racial desegregation in terms of residential patterns. So uh, neighborhoods. And, and neighborhoods. And even more than that, um, there was never, I think, even any thought about the kinds of uh, segregation that are based on economics. Uh, um, 
basically on class status. And so Austin is one of the most economically segregated cities in the country at this point. And that is reflected in the schools. And when economic segregation uh, is an issue, then racial segregation is going to also be an issue because, as we know, racial difference uh, is a key driver of economic difference. Now, when we think about AISD and we think about the city of Austin, we usually think of Austin as this progressive city. What is the AISD not doing for students of color, for students who are in segregated, economically disadvantaged communities, whether it's in East Austin, but just in the entire AISD district? In terms of segregation, um, AISD has not been able to come up with the mechanisms to convert a residentially segregated city into an educationally desegregated city. And it's very difficult to do so, very costly. But even more than that, politically, it's almost impossible. In other words, you uh, once you try to engage in any kind of desegregation, which uh, takes uh, residential segregation and tries to, to, to modify that, then you're talking about things like busing or you're talking about uh, alternative zonings which go against the previous patterns that exist, and that's that's politically very difficult to do. And that's what I was going to ask you in terms of what are some solutions? Because certainly in the 1970s, we had busing, and busing was very controversial. We think about Boston, different crises, but busing was in New York, it was in Greensboro, North Carolina, it was in Atlanta, it was in California, it was in Austin, it was, it was everywhere. And, and since busing, there hasn't been really a way to have what the court used to call racial balancing, right. a racially balanced right. school. Right. What are some non-busing options that we have? Well, here in Austin, Texas, because of the racial geography of the city, one way to approach it would be to draw your uh, school zoning boundaries east-west rather than north-south. And what would that do? What, what that does is racial segregation historically in Austin, actually ever since the 1928 ordinance, has been an issue of east-west um, segregation. In other words, white folks living on the western side of town and black and then increasingly uh, Latinx folks living on the eastern side of town. And historically, zoning for schools has been configured north-south, which then maintains the separation between the east and west. So one uh, an initial move, which could make things uh, at least somewhat different, would be to draw those lines east-west across what's down. The dividing line uh, was East Avenue. Uh, I-35 was placed over that. And so to, to draw lines across I-35 rather than parallel to I-35 would have some effect on it. That would be one way to do it. So we'd have more racially integrated schools. You'd have more racially and more economically integrated schools if you were to do that. How would we do that? Is that city council? Is that the mayor? No, Is that that's, the school board? that has to do with the school board uh, and also the, the, uh, the administration. Right now, the boundary committee, the main boundary committees are basically set by the, the school administration, not even by the board. So the board would have to intervene to redo or redetermine who actually makes those decisions in terms of that, or at least the suggestions. And the administration would have to be um, okay with that. And then the administration would have to do the hard work to figure out exactly how that would work. Now, that wouldn't, that wouldn't change everything, but it would be a, you know, a start. 
The other way to handle school segregation in Austin is to think about um, having a number of schools not be based on uh, residents in terms of attendance zones, but to be based on uh, interest and choice. Uh, and there was some of that attempted uh, 10, 20 years ago uh, in Austin. You may have heard of the uh, Science Academy that was in the LBJ School yes. and the Liberal Arts Academy that was on the Johnston campus. Uh, those were attempts to take high schools, which were largely segregated black and brown, uh, uh, segregated black and brown, and put magnet schools in those schools as a part of those high schools. But they become... In, in order to be able to, to draw students from other parts of town to those schools. Unfortunately, through a number of different initiatives, the decision was made both to, well, first of all, to move the Liberal Arts Academy out of Johnston and move that to LBJ, and then to change, to put two high schools in the one building, which was LBJ, which is the regular school, and the... Lassa. Lassa. Uh, which was the magnet school, and they were separated into two schools having two different principals, basically creating a system of apartheid in the building. Wow. Was there protest against that? Not really at the time. Uh, I don't think people really realized what was going on. And, and also there were some, there was w one of the problems that that separation of the schools was supposedly designed to deal with was a problem of the so-called 10% rule, right? Which here in Texas, uh, probably all your listeners are familiar with this, but uh, the top 10% of the graduates, uh, the graduating class from every high school in the state have the right to go to one or the other of the two flagship institutions uh, of higher education, UT and Texas A&M. Uh, that's now down to 6%, but that's another story. Uh, the problem there was that the Lassa students, or the Science Academy students who were in the same school with LBJ, and the liberal arts students who were in the same in the on the Johnson's campus, were taking AP courses, which give you f what five credits instead of four for an A and things like that. Uh, and also they were, you know, a higher achiever. Many of them were higher achievers, and so in terms of the ten percent plan, the uh, kids from the regular campus or who were in the uh, in the neighborhood portion of the program uh, were not really represented at all in the top 10 percent. And so that was considered to be unfair. So changes were made for that reason. But what we got was complete segregation. Well, I want to shift um, conversation a little bit to higher education. Well, before you do that, Pinel, let me say something else. I, you know, what I said was that segregation is one of the two biggest problems. But for me, the biggest problem oh. is the achievement gap. Oh, let's talk uh, about and, that. And there's a, yes. a, a racial and economic achievement gap in, in Austin schools. Uh, it's particularly um, acute in relationship to black students. Um, What's black, driving this achievement gap? Well, uh, I have to say that black students aren't getting the kind of education that they deserve in, in our schools. And the school district has not figured out how to adequately d deliver quality education to black students, such that you have a situation in which on um, both reading and math standardized tests, black students test something like 40% below uh, white students. Now, when you think about this achievement gap, is this based on poverty? Is it based on what's happening in the home? Is it under-resourced schools? Is it teachers who aren't teaching black children 
effectively? Um, what's going on in terms of why the achievement gap? Well, just like elsewhere in the country, it's a combination of those factors. It's a it's a complex situation, um, which requires, um, I think, the, implica- the implementation of uh, solutions with some finesse and and some sophistication. Um, it's all those issues. Uh, I think that um, it is definitely the case that for many teachers, teaching black and brown kids is um, is harder than they find teaching um, kids from other backgrounds. Uh, part of that has to do with the fact that our teaching um, staff or faculty in AISD is predominantly white and and women, which isn't to say that white women can't teach kids of color, but it does require uh, learning some skills, some intercultural skills, and uh, having some understandings that, uh, you know, young people coming right out of an edu- school of education don't necessarily have and that re- require time uh, uh, and the interest to try to figure out how it is to best reach our students. Uh, you know, varying lessons and uh, making them culturally appropriate, uh, uh, teaching basics um, uh, in terms of reading and all that are, are things that are important for our kids. And uh, AISD has not always been really good about about getting those teachers with those kinds of skills in the places, principal leadership that can help teachers marshal those skills uh, into the places where they're they're most needed. We know that uh, black and brown kids can learn. We have a number of schools in the um, the area that I represented, District 1, that uh, have really uh, turned around and, and um, have kind of lowered or decreased the, uh, the gaps in terms of, uh, in terms of achievement. Uh, AISD has not been particularly good at being able to reproduce those experiences. My final question when it comes to AISD is about testing and just public schools in general. Do you think that we need to move, especially for educators who are interested in um, students of color and Black and Latinx students, move to a model where we're not measuring achievement by tests? So in a way, I'm almost um, suggesting almost a banning of tests, at least tests that count as a measure of, of educational achievement. But still, I want reading, writing, all these things to be excellent, but tests. Yeah, I think that that is correct, that we need to be moving in that direction. The problem is that currently, uh, or let me say this, in my experience as a school board member um, who came in uh, deeply suspicious of a testing culture uh, and deeply um, suspicious of the testing industrial complex uh, and also deeply suspicious about any test's ability to uh, demonstrate the intelligence or even the academic capacity of a student uh, as a leader, as an educational leader, and on the school board, uh, we really had no other tools besides those tests to be able to determine whether there was, whether uh, instruction was being equitably uh, distributed amongst our children. Uh, We certainly knew that um, 
many of our black and brown kids were getting out of school with serious deficiencies in terms of uh, reading and in terms of math. We knew that most of our black and brown kids get out of our schools without any chance of going to a, onto a rigorous college uh, education. Um, but we had no other tools to be able to assess what was going on as they went through uh, these programs than the standardized tests. And in addition to that, um, we can say that standardized tests do not um, demonstrate people's capacity, and I firmly believe that. However, white students are doing great in standardized tests, and black and brown kids are not doing you know, well at all. Now, that has something to do with the cultural biases that are in the tests themselves, but that's not completely it. A lot of it has to do with it. Our kids are not being taught the basic skills in terms of math and reading to be able to do well on a standardized test or any other form of assessment. So what I would say to that, you know, that question, it's one of the things that's been a real problem in, in Austin is that Austin as a progressive city has been very, um, again, very suspicious of using standardized tests to evaluate its students and its schools. I think that standardized tests should not be used to evaluate students, but in lack with in the situation of a lack of an alternative assessment, I think they probably should be used to hold the district and schools responsible for delivering an education which gives these kids a chance to, to succeed. The other thing I'd say about that is that it is absolutely correct to be, you know, to really be critical of standardized testing. But when you've got kids who are forced to take that test and who fail over and over again, the destruction psychologically and in relationship to their their perceptions of themselves and their ability to succeed educationally is devastating. And until we have some other way of dealing with things, I think we've got to be attentive and give these kids the tools necessary to be able to achieve in the way that we're assessing them. And now I want to shift to higher education and your role in higher education, both here um, administratively at UT, but also as a thought leader in terms of uh, black studies and an institution builder. What, you know, UT just celebrated 50 years of um, black studies. Um, there was a major conference. I want you to discuss the history, just generally, give us a brief glimpse of the history of black studies at UT, um, including um, leading to your directorship of both the Center for African and African Diaspora Studies, but that becomes a department that has, you know, is housed in a building that's offering a PhD. How did that happen here um, in Austin? Well, that's a tall order, Pinnell. You, you are, you know, I've been here, as you said, my count was 30 years, but you may be right. It may be 32. Uh, 1987. I was hired in 87? Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. All right. Uh, At any rate, um, this has been a long process. So UT was, um, there was a lot of student activism and activism on the part of faculty members uh, in the 1960s, which led to the opening up of an ethnic studies uh, center in 69 and the hiring of the first uh, African-American tenured faculty member, who was also a full professor, Henry Bullock, in 69 to head that up. Unfortunately, Bullock uh, got ill and only lasted a couple of years. By the time we get to 1973, 
the Ethnic Studies Center had been divided into two, Mexican-American Studies on the one hand and African and Afro-American Studies on the other hand, and they hired a young faculty member from Michigan, uh, John Warfield, to head that up. Uh, the center is now named after Warfield, who spent uh, a number of years as its director and was actually really influential in terms of opening up um, black studies on this campus, but also connecting uh, black students and the black studies program on this campus with the rest of the uh, African-American community in, uh, in Austin. Uh, some of the th amazing things that he was able to do is he... he uh, with others in the black community in Austin, Austin's black community, created KZI, which is still an operating black-run uh, public radio station, uh, which is incredible. Uh, they um, started a, a, a black organization, the Black Citizens Task Force, which was the preeminent black power organization in, in Austin for many, many years. They were the ones who demanded and got a, um, a police monitor, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So these were things that, um, through organization on the UT campus, under um, uh, the auspices of a Black Studies program, which kind of firmly believed and enacted one of the main uh, tenets of Black Studies is that scholarship should be used for social change and for the benefit of the Black community. Warfield was able to make those kinds of things happen. Um, eventually, he was um, hmm, he was tossed out of that position uh, to the chagrin and the demonstrations of black students against it. And why was he? Um, he was out? dismissed from that position by a dean who I will not hesitate to call racist, and I don't call very many people racist. Uh, I remember sitting in a presentation, a debate. Uh, in which he defended the bell curve against another social against a sociologist who uh, was um, uh, making criticisms of, of it. Uh, this is a person who firmly believed that black people were intellectually inferior to white people. Um, wow! So as dean, he he dismissed Warfield for being too politically engaged. Uh, mm. That the center was not uh, academic enough. Uh, and he was supported in that by two African-American faculty members, uh, one of whom is still on this campus. The other went on to a great career and of being president of an HBCU. Uh, wow. And that's that's the relatively sordid history of the struggle for black um, for black black studies on this campus. You know, eventually we were able to starting about in the year 2000, um, move towards expanding uh, the presence of uh, black intellectual work on this, intellectual and scholarly work on this campus. Part of that had to do with, uh, curiously enough, the Hopwood decision, mm. which if you remember, uh, it was a decision of what was the Fifth Circuit Court, mm -hmm. Federal Court, which decided that uh, UT's affirmative action program was uh, illegal. And then there was a, uh, a attorney general, Morales, who then served time in jail after that. But nevertheless, he decided that that decision should be uh, amplified to cover all affirmative action programs in the state of Texas, mm. which undermined... Um, the ability of UT to engage in diversification of its faculty and otherwise. 
Out of that, instead of using affirmative action, we began to use what's called thematic hiring to hire faculty of color under the um, theory that in certain areas of study, there are pools of potential faculty members uh, who are diverse, who are more concentrated. And so we began hiring along those kinds of lines. And by doing that, we really strengthened the number of faculty on campus who were doing black studies related kind of things. From there, it was only a, a matter of time when we had a critical mass of black scholars on campus to begin thinking about uh, uh, forming a department. Uh, our biggest problem was that at, because we were not a department, we were a center, the African, African and African American Studies Center at the time, we couldn't hire senior faculty because we had to rely on other departments to hire those faculty. Uh, that became a problem. And so basically we were granted the ability to create a department because we had a critical mass of outstanding young scholars, but also we needed to have a way to be able to, to top off that mass with being able to hire senior scholars as well. And so that was, that uh, was basically the impetus for, for creating the department. And we went on from there to, as you said before, to create the master's program and the PhD, et cetera. Sticking with black studies, what do you think the role of black studies is uh, in the 21st century in promoting racial justice, equal citizenship, robust democracy? And, and I ask that because really ads at UT is one of about a dozen, 15 programs across the country, like Harvard, Yale, UT, that offer PhDs in things that are variously called African and African diaspora studies, some called African and Afro-American studies, um, just different. Michigan State is one of them too. Africana Northwestern, Africana studies, right, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So we've really seen a, a real growth um, in black studies, especially black studies at elite institutions like UT. They're offering not only PhDs, but they're, they're attracting brilliant students. And these students are being placed in major jobs, just so everyone knows, in major jobs all across the United States and across the world. So what do you think the role, when you think about black studies, both in terms of undergraduates, graduates, but also in terms of community engagement, academic excellence, social responsibility in the 21st century? Well, I think that the that in part, the role remains the same, as you were just saying. The role of black studies is to link rigorous scholarship to the resolution or the, well, the transformation of society and the, uh, the resolution of the major problems that uh, black and other communities of color have in this country and elsewhere. So I think that's a, that's a key aspect of what we need to be doing. Uh, I always, for me, engaged research or even activist research is a key aspect of what black studies should be, going all the way back to Du Bois uh, and, and that whole Du Boisian tradition. But beyond that, um, I think it's very interesting that the top universities, the top research universities in this country are all, if they had do not have or have not had black studies uh, departments in the past, uh, with doctoral programs, they are rapidly producing. Columbia just got one. Uh, UCLA formed one not so uh, not so long ago, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Why do you think and this I, is happening? I think that's because, um, as Cornell West said so many years ago, um, black studies scholars or folks who are studying the black experience and bringing black knowledges to the fore in terms of regular scholarship 
uh, are at the cutting edge of, um, of academic and scholarly theory. Uh, we are the ones, in other words, we presaged, as, as Cornel West said, postmodernism, the postmodern move, double consciousness, uh, you know, these intersectionality, kinds of intersectionality uh, flexibility, uh, yeah, black feminist uh, reflexivity. These are all things that uh, have come out of uh, uh, scholars who are either in black studies programs or who could be or are working out of what might be called the kind of black uh, I know we have the black radical tradition, but let's call it the, the black intellectual tradition, mm -hmm. the critical intellectual tradition. Uh, we're at the forefront of critical thought. Uh, a year or two ago, I was in a conversation with someone uh, in a break uh, before testifying before the liberal arts uh, tenure and promotion committee. And a, a faculty member, a senior faculty member from the philosophy department came to me and said, you know, I've been watching what's been going on in ads for a while now. And for, as, as far as I'm concerned, you folks are at the, you're the, the wellspring of critical thought on this campus. Uh, and I think he's absolutely right. Um, black studies is about critical thought and it's about creating um, theory and conceptualization that comes from a different place than the canon, and but it's also well versed in the canon because we've got to know it to get through through uh, you know the scholarly bureaucracy and all that. And I I think we've been well placed and have done um, really important work in terms of adding creating the critical edge for scholarship, particularly in the humanities and the social sciences in this country in the last. 30, 40 years. When you think about black studies on this campus, I think it forces us all. And there are, you know, there's black studies and Warfield Center and IUPRA. Um, I, I lead the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy, and I'm a black studies scholar as well. But it forces us all to think about issues of justice and equity. And right now you are uh, vice provost for diversity. And um, I want you to talk about your role as vice provost for diversity, especially as somebody who's been on campus as long as you have been and have seen both progress and setbacks in terms of equity here. Uh, what is your role? And really, um, what should we be doing as a university? Because you know about the 1928 ordinance. Um, IUPRA, headed by Kevin Coakley, has done great work on this. Eric Tang has done great work on this, faculty member in ads. Um, looking at gentrification in Austin, inequity in Austin, and really inequity at every single sector, residential, uh, employment, transportation, uh, the environment, education, <laughs> incarceration. Um, and we face equity issues right here on campus with both Black and Latinx scholars, even those who have tenure in terms of equity issues about pay, leave time, what people have gotten access to do, why. Um, so I want you to talk about your role as vice provost and what are what are the challenges that we face at the university, but what are the real opportunities and potential to make us a leading um, major research university that has not, if not solved these issues, have, have, have made great progress in terms of these issues of equity and justice? Yeah, I would say, first of all, that we certainly have not solved these issues. And in terms of having made great progress, uh, we've made progress, um, but we started out 
pretty far behind. In other words, it wasn't until 1950 when we had our first graduate students here, 56 when we had our first undergraduates here. And as I said, it was 69 when we had our first tenured faculty, black faculty member on campus. So this this is, you know, within my lifetime. So we had a long way to come in terms of that. We still got a long way to go. Uh, there's a number of things that have to happen. I think first of all, first and foremost, the University of Texas has to recognize its historical role in terms of fomenting inequity, both as an institution within the institution, but also within Central Texas and Austin in particular. Uh, the first instance of what I would call anti-black gentrification in this city happened with the placement of this institution in its on these 40 acres here. One of the most vibrant uh, black communities, freed people's communities, Wheatville, was wiped out pretty much within, you know, 60 to 70 years after the, the creation of this institution here by the ways in which... Um, First of all, land prices went up and uh, competition for resources went up, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, this institution has a, a long history. You can also think about the fact that uh, the wealthiest ex-Confederate used this campus to create the largest last cause memorial on a university campus in this country right here in Austin, Texas. Right. Is that Littlefield? Yep, it's Littlefield, and that's the, the whole South Mall complex there, the vestiges of which are still right there. He also contributed mightily to uh, its reproduction uh, on the South Mall, the Capitol building. All those things are still there. So white supremacy and you know lost cause ideology is at the very core of the university. In fact, I call this university, at least since its, its founding in 18, or its opening in 1883, up through the 60s, a neo-Confederate university. It's mm. not a Confederate university, right? It's not the same thing as the antebellum South and all that, but these are neo-Confederates who created this, and it's a neo-Confederate university. So as the, um, the vice provost for diversity, my main responsibility is in terms of faculty diversity. Uh, and uh, as you said, we have a long way to go here. And I think one of the first things that the university has to come to terms with is too often, especially after Baki, we tend to think about diversity as being something that's good for everybody and something that uh, will allow us to, by having diverse faculty, uh, will allow us to appeal to a diverse clientele uh, and serve diverse markets and this kind of thing. Those things are important. Um, it's important that all students have uh, exposure to diverse peoples and to diverse faculty. I, mean, I think you just learn more and all that. That's important, but it's an instrumental notion of what diversity is. Mm. I'm equally interested in the moral issues involved. Yes. In other words, this university has a moral responsibility to address its past, its past which was not inclusive and not equitable. In other words, one of the only reasons we have to be concerned about diversity now is because in the past we've not been inclusive and equitable. If we had been inclusive and equitable in the past, diversity would not be an issue now. Mm -hmm. We need to recognize that, and we need to recognize our responsibilities to address that. Now, I said that uh, the Baki decision 
has allowed folks to be diverted from that sense of moral obligation, in part because Baki said we couldn't think about redressing the issues of the past. But we're not talking about affirmative action here. We're talking about what is the university's moral responsibility to be an inclusive uh, and equitable institution demonstrated by our diversity. And I think that we need to embrace that. Um, what does that mean? It means to me, it means that we need to be doing more than just bringing down as much as possible the barriers to doing the kind of hiring that would uh, create a diverse faculty. Those things are important, right? We need to be attacking implicit racism and all that in our searches and in our promotion and all that kind of thing. But beyond that, because we have a moral obligation to address this particular past, we need to be more proactive about those things. We need to be putting into place the kinds of rules and incentives that will actively and proactively uh, diversify ourselves rather than just relying on the notion of bringing down the barriers to equal opportunity. Because equal opportunity in a formerly racist circumstance will only reproduce the inequities that um, were set in place by the history that we're a product of. Absolutely. We need equality of outcomes and not just opportunity. And in order to get equality of outcomes, you have to be proactive. You can't just say, all right, well, we're going to bring down the barriers and it's going to happen. You have to be out there recruiting. You have to be making the right kind of uh, circumstances for people to be able to feel comfortable. You have to be uh, investing in the kinds of programs that are attractive uh, to folks that will bring in a diverse uh, population, et cetera. But we can't call it affirmative action. <laughs> Well, if we did that, we don't have to call it for a reaction. What it is doing is it's trying to make sure that we're inclusive and equitable and that we're building a diverse, uh, a diverse community of scholars, both because it is good for everybody, but even more importantly, because it's the right thing to do. All right. Dr. Ted Gordon, who is vice provost for diversity and the founding chair and associate professor in the Department of African and African Diaspora Studies. Thank you for speaking to us today at Race and Democracy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj utexas.edu and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.